Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. My name is Podcast Mike. I am the producer on this podcast and this week's guest is Linda Mariano. You will probably know Linda for her very long and successful career at Triple J. Uh, most recently, she was the host of the Triple J Morning Show, previously on Good Nights, and before that, uh, she was an afternoon drive presenter. This is a great chat between Linda and Will that we actually recorded a couple of months ago now, so it is great to be finally putting it out. She speaks about her career at Triple J, her broadcasting career, and what she's up to now since leaving Triple J, and how she dealt with the pandemic and everything that's been happening in the world recently. She also speaks about leaving Triple J for the first time in 2008 when she went to live in London to play with her band. You can currently see and hear Linda on a lot of projects, including ABC's The Set with Dylan Olcott, another Triple J alumni, as well as her most recent podcast project with another ex-Triple J presenter, Brooke Boney, uh, called Brooke and Linda's Dream Club, which you can check out now wherever you podcast. This show has had a bunch of former Triple J presenters on it in the past, so if you would like to listen to some more, you can scroll up in the feed to listen to chats with Michael Higgs who currently presents the Hobber and Hing drive show on Triple J, as well as two episodes with Alex Dyson, formerly of Triple J Breakfast with Matt O'Kine. Will has two upcoming dates for his comedy show, Will Eagle, Saturday the 12th and Saturday the 13th of June in Wagga Wagga at the Wagga Wagga Civic Theatre. Go and check out that show and check out some of the other podcasts on the TOEFOP network, including TOEFOP, Two Guys, One Cup and AFL Podcast, and of course, FOFOP. But for now, let's get into this week's episode. Philosophy with Linda Mariano. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast, and this is how the show starts. I ask my guests who they are. So, who are you? Hello, uh, I am Linda Mariano. I was born more so with the name Karma Linda, but I kind of shed that at some point because it was too annoying to be constantly spelling out to people. But my name's Linda Mariano, and it's very nice to be seeing you and talking to you after what feels like so long. Uh, well, thank you, Carmen Linda Mariano, because I did not know that your name was Carmen Linda in, until it came up on the Zoom call. Oh. Now, on the little description down the bottom, it had like your full name there. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I did not know that about you. So when did uh, Carmen Linda go away? Like, where, was there oh, a... Oh, it's, it's, okay, it's, it's Karma Linda. Karma Linda, sorry. Karma Linda. When did it go away? I think it was, it pretty much went away almost as soon as I was born, but I... Right was named after my Italian grandmother. So her name was Carmelinda. I was named after her. My brother, who we call Sam, was named after the grandfather who was Salvatore. So we were born with, I looked like a real total Buddha is what my mum and my dad called me. Like I looked totally <laughs> on my mum's side, totally like a Chinese baby, yep. but had this extremely Italian <laughs> name. Um, but, you know, as soon as I think basically as soon as we got out of the hospital, it was always just Linda. They always just shortened it straight away. And it was that way all through school, all through high school. And it was only ever when I had to bring my passport out for something. 
uh, my passport, which I haven't seen in, in forever. Who knows if we'll ever see or use them again? But that that was the only time that Karma Linda ever really came out. Uh, is, is there anyone in the family or anything who hang, hang, hangs on to Karma Linda? Because it's actually a very beautiful name. And once you get the hang of saying it, it's actually a very <sighs> fun name to say as well. It is. Like it 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 has a real musical quality to it. It is. It's nice. No one ever really says it. My nonna says it a little bit. When I go to visit her in the nursing home, she'll always say, this is my nipote, this is my granddaughter, she's me, she's also Karma Linda. So that's kind of the only time we said it. Although I do remember starting to use it at one point when I lived in London, which would be going on almost... 10 years ago now, but I got a part-time job in silver service catering. So I would work Mm. at these like high-end catering companies where we would be serving the royal family and all these weird kind of old, what are they called? Like those old kind of knights and swordsmen of the lost era. So we would be serving them and they would all call me Carmelinda, which I just for some reason started using because they would see that because in order to apply for the job, I had to submit my passport, my visa details. That's that's amazing. So tell me more about this job. I'm so fascinated by this. Tell me what took you to London. Give me a little sketch of what your life is like this time and how you end up working at this silver service catering firm. You know what's so weird? It's such a kind of, it was such an interesting part of my life and I don't think I've ever told anyone about it, certainly not with a mic in in front of me. Uh, but the reason I initially moved to London, I was in my twen- early 20s and I was full-time at Triple J. Ever heard of it? <laughs> Started working full-time <laughs> used to be at good, Triple Linda, J. Back in the day, bring back Adam used to be world. good. Bring him back. <laughs> Just bring him back. Everyone sucks. I don't understand the music. Too much hip-hop. Uh, so I was working at Triple J and simultaneously I was finishing uni and I'd started a band with four of my best friends and while I was kind of coming up through Triple J and doing Drive with Scott Dooley, uh, the band that I was in got a record deal, got a publishing deal, signed a management deal, all of that stuff and for some reason none of it was in Australia. It was all in London. So we had this golden ticket that was like, we're signing you. You're coming over here. Choose the producer you want to work with. You want to work with the guy that produced uh, Disintegration by The Cure? Come on over. You're going to meet him. You're going to. So we were in this kind of whirlwind thing where all of a sudden, within a few months, I quit my job at Triple J, moved to London, you know, whiz bang. It was this world of kind of new rave. It was klaxons. It was block party. It was all these bands and we were thrown into the mix of it. And so we were there to write an album, record the album, tour the record. And there was five of us. There was four girls and and they were the girls I met on the first day of high school, best friends to this day still, best friends and a guy that had become a friend of ours in the last few years who was our drummer. So we were there living in this one house. I remember the record label found us this five-bedroom house and we fought over what rooms we would get because, you know, there was this master bedroom that had the ensuite and then there was this tiny bedroom stuck in a corner downstairs in this god-awful suburb of London that I now think upon, like, so fondly. Anyway, long story short, we wrote and toured the album 
But in the downtime, we had those visas where you could work part-time as well. So we're there, we're being given this tiny wage that was our record label advance. Um, And then I wanted you know, extra money so I could buy cool clothes at Topshop on the weekend that I could then wear on stage when we go to Dublin, you know, or go to Edinburgh or something, some glamorous, dingy-ass pub in the middle of nowhere (laughs) that we would have to drive this shitty van to and load and unload and drop bass amps on your fucking toes on the weekends. But during the weekdays, I'd go, okay, well, I've worked in hospitality before. I worked at a cafe when I was in uni, so why don't I just apply for like some casual catering work? You get given your shifts at the start of the week. You tell them what days you're free and you go and do it. And so I started working at these catering jobs where it was me and it was always like a hundred other kids that would be from the ages of 20 to 26. And we were just these young kind of fit kids and there was all of these immigrants that had you know were living in in London so there was hot French people and there was Spanish kids and there was Australians and it was this amazing like melting pot of stuff and I really liked it because it was this fast work where you working in catering you're serving all these people and then you get to gobble up the food at the end of the night and you get to meet different people you know in the stairways as you're waiting to clear the plates in the hall and then from that I think I'd gotten scouted within one of those functions because these were big functions for I don't know corporate things but then I'd gotten scouted within that where they were like you Mm you're going to come and work at Silver Service Catering where you're going to serve the Duke of Edinburgh next week. Wow. So you got promoted to the pros. Like you were literally – I got promoted. Somebody was keeping an eye on you. You've got to watch Mariano. She is just good around these She tables. was so good at serving. And so I got like poached and then plopped into this elite group of – I think there was 10 of us that worked for this one company. That was it. It was this – elite tier of silver service catering where it was 10 people, all girls, all, you know, attractive in inverted commas, <laughs> and everybody was a up-and-coming actor, uh-huh. dancer, model. For me, I was in a in a band and it was like this flexibility that worked and they we'd clearly been plucked out as you're attractive. We reckon you can serve all these weird old men when they come into these old secretive halls and mansions in the outskirts of London and you're going to serve them and they're going to look at you up and down. You're going to serve them on a Tuesday through to a Friday and you're going to let them talk about you in front of you and but you're going to be silent. And so that's what I did. And I just remember serving these insanely wealthy people of of an amount that I had never encountered. Like we don't have that kind of old wealth in Australia, that kind of generation upon generation of these so many men in these three-piece suits that wear all of these medals on their Jackets and these huge, like, gout-looking bodies and cauliflower noses. And I remember serving them these, like, six-course meals. And they would sit there and they'd talk about you like this. They'd say, look at 
this one. Where do you think this exotic one is from, Harold? And then Harold would turn and be like, well, I'm not sure. Let's let's see. Yes, put it down. Put it down there. I want more scotch. And it was so weird. But it was so such an, a fly on the wall insight because you could just – Oh, like eavesdrop on their conversations because they talked about you like you weren't there. It is interesting. So like, firstly, just being in service of other people in that regard, you become invisible, right? I had uh, a catering job yeah. as well when I first started doing stand-up because for the same reasons as you, flexible hours, if you know you don't have a week or two of stand-up, you can sign up for the catering. But if you've got some other stuff to do, they don't mind if you don't put in for some hours. Like it is a good job for somebody who's pursuing another career. So it makes a lot of sense that you're going to have like models, people's in ba- people in bands, artists, these sort of people who need a flexible workforce. So you get that. Very interesting. But secondly, you become invisible when you're staff, particularly staff in those sort of situations. And one of the things that my catering company used to do was if the casino, Crown Casino just opened in Melbourne at the time, and if Crown Casino needed, if they had a shortage of like busboys and stuff to pick up glasses, they would just go. And I used to take that all the time. It was like midnight till 8am or something like that. All you had to do was pick up glasses. So you didn't really have to think at all. It was just like go around, pick up glasses. It's actually a fine job, right? Except for the human misery you experience when people think you're invisible and like a casino it is in place of great joy at the best of times in my opinion but like between midnight and 8am it is not a pleasant place to be you see an insight into a world that I swore that I would never become a part of but you've got a much more I mean, again, and equally horrible in a way because you're seeing how entrenched this male privilege is and this wealth yeah. privilege is and it is all just old, white, mostly white men, I imagine, and this is generational. This is the ultimate example of the cartoonish nature of, like, white male privilege. But I imagine there yeah. would have been part of it that's super interesting because of that, right? You're just like, look at these caricatures of everything that's kind of wrong with you know uh, privilege and masculinity yes and I remember there would be we would go and serve them and then we would be ushered out of the rooms and they would board up the windows and the doors so we couldn't enter while they were talking because it was this secrets men's business. Uh So they would literally board up the windows and the doors and we would sit there and wait in this tiny stairwell (laughs) until someone would go, okay, you can go and clear the plates now. And we'd go and clear the plates. And I just, that reminds me, I remember this one time where I was, I'd cleared the plates and I was putting cutlery onto these uh, onto, onto the plates but I was in the corner of the room and for some reason I was still in the room I, mm. I, I didn't just clear the plates and hold them on my arm and walk out I was in the corner of the room stacking stuff and grabbing extra things and I remember I had my back to this table that I'd just served and I remember them talking about me so distinctly and I remember them making all these assumptions about who and what I was and it was this absolutely mind-blowing class system where they had obviously looked at me and assessed what they thought my upbringing or why I was there or something and I just remember this guy going so you look at look at this one for example and I I could feel my cheeks burning up because I was like they are 
talking about me. I'm the only this one that's in here. And I remember him going, you know, this one, her upbringing and where she's come from, she's now been given an extraordinary opportunity to be here and this is miles away from anything she could have had back home where she is from. And I just remember thinking, what the fuck? Like, what am I doing here? I was doing a national drive show right. <laughs> four months ago. <laughs> and now I'm here in this weird hall where there's weird portraits that look like horror films on the walls that are like painted of you assholes and you just like it was so weird and you know they would just talk about your appearance and just all of these things but like you said it was fascinating and I'm still fascinated by it and I have to say that because it didn't it didn't ever hurt me I, I just found it so interesting to hear how they existed it's, yeah, they're so ridiculous, and it's and it is also ridiculous that it, that is unfortunately there is a lot of like real damage that is done to our society behind those sort of things. But they are like caricatures, cartoons. But I love that idea Absolutely. of you know that moment of you asking yourself like, why am I here? I had all this stuff, and I gave it all up, and look at where I am right now. So that's yes. an interesting place for me. I've been through that. I went to America, and you know, like lived over there and worked over there for ten years. And there was a few times where I was in a few very places where I was like you don't need to be doing this mate like you had things Mm -hmm. absolutely fine back home the only person who's making you do this shit is you what have you done to yourself you know that old Radiohead lyric you do it to yourself that's why it really hurts like so why were you there what had made you think like you've under you've explained the circumstance but I want to talk about the you know where you are in your life why you make that big decision what was it about taking that risk that appealed I made that decision with the same mentality that I think I make every big decision and it's why I'm here in Australia now and it's why I quit my job at Triple J at the end of 2019 and it's this same thing where I know how much I crave, even at the risk of everything, I crave change Mm. and stimulation and a change of energy in my surroundings and even though it might not seem like the most rational or logical decision at the time and I remember when I quit Triple J the first time and the second time that I've done it there are a majority of people that go but why would you do that what you've got is a dream what you've got is security what you've got is power what you've got is is something other people would die to have and every single time it's not like it's not enough but it's it's not the right thing for me it doesn't f- i feel like i owe it to myself at every point in my life to not pursue progression but I, I think that's what it is at the crux of it, that I always, I want to be learning, I want to be changing, I want to be transforming, even if that means that I'm risking it all and that it could end up in some hardships, which clearly the last year has happened to me. You know, I had this huge plan, the same as London, where 
you you want to leave something behind for the mystery of something that could be grander. And for me, it, no matter how it works out, our band ended up splitting up. And having a huge fight, I remember driving at 2 a.m. after a show in Germany where we were like, that's fucking it. We're done. Even in those moments, even in the hardest bits of last year where I realised that I couldn't move to L.A. the way I'd planned, my partner and I couldn't be together for a year. Like, and that didn't feel fair. I still knew that deep down in me, that if I don't, if I didn't take the leap to change and jump into the mystery of what that could symbolize, that I would feel, that I would feel that I haven't done myself justice. I haven't done my brain justice in not trying this thing. Oh, Linda, I love so much about this. There's so many things that I want to unpick here. I'm going to miss some of them uh, as we go back because there was just so much good stuff in that. Like you're, here's, here's a person who's used to asking people questions and expecting good answers. You've just come with some good answers yourself. <laughs> you're like, this would be good. This will give me 15 things that he can deal with. The first one is, okay, I love that perspective because I relate a lot to it, I think. Uh, yeah. And I think that there is something about Triple J that comes into this relationship that I find interesting because Triple J can be both a blessing and a curse because in a way you know that it's probably the greatest job you're ever going to have in your life in that like your kids who get to run a radio station and there's not really a lot of news like outlaws and like rules and like I mean there is of course there's all these things there's the ABC and there's management and there's all these things that come with having yeah. a job but in the when you go to the rest of the world and do things in the rest of the world you'll look back on those times and be amazed at the freedom that you had like you know doing your show the opportunities you had out of it the people you got to meet the you know all those sort of things there's a part of you but yeah. you also can't be you know Matthew McConaughey in um, uh, what, uh, Days and Confused you don't want to be that like old guy who's just hanging around at the party way too long. It's part of it's meant to be that you quit. Like, and I think it's everybody's responsibility to quit because why would you want to quit? Nobody wants to quit there. Yeah. You don't want to leave there. Yes, you could be very comfortable there forever, but you've got to give somebody else the opportunity that you got to have that fun. It's your responsibility to quit at some stage, but it then consigns you to this world where you, your bar now for what it is that's going to interest and excite you has been set at a really high level. I feel like now you're like, I really need to go out there and experience things, take risks and like look for that same thrill. So so you are that person, you make that big decision and then the whole world shuts down for you. As you said, you can't be with your partner, you can't move overseas like, and you don't know when those things are going to happen. How does somebody who's made such a big decision – and to put this in context, because you don't need to know everything about my life, regular listeners to this will know that I quit my radio job at the end of you know 2019 and I was going to tour three shows in 2020 because I was oh like, I God. just want to get back to live work. It's all I really love doing. I'm going to dedicate a whole year to it. I'm going to travel all over the world and yeah, secret of comedy timing. So uh, I, I get what you're saying. So I want you to then, you know, share with me what that was like for you when you've made this big, bold sort of decision and then everything has to be put on hold. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it was, for me, that, that decision to leave at the end of 2019 was so 
kind of long coming. So I'd been in a long distance relationship that had already gone on for three years, three and a half years. And it was always this really exciting thing of now we can finally take the next step. Now everything else can fall into place. So I'd packed up, I'd gone to LA, stayed there for a few months and then I got back and that's when it all just like, like I came back to Australia for what I thought was two weeks to change my visa over, to do a quick job and then I was going back to LA. And then when I was faced with, okay, your idea of this year, it might not fucking live up to what you thought it was going to be. You always knew it was going to be some sort of transition year. You always knew it would be maybe a bit broken up in parts and that you would just be finding your way, but you didn't fucking plan on this. So what are you going to do about it? And I suppose it was it was weird because for me it happened unlike you it happened in the oh no it did I mean we both did it in the time of COVID where I feel like this kind of greater good this greater purpose comes into play and you go well at the moment we just need to be healthy and we all just need to survive so how dare I think about my hardships who cares about the the tours falling through who cares that I'm not seeing my boyfriend my dad might die next time he goes to work so all of this kind of greater purpose stuff comes into play and you kind of doggy paddle through the next month or so, just kind of going, are we safe? Has anyone that I know got COVID? Are we okay? We can get through this little bit. And then it got to about halfway through last year where it hit. It got to about halfway through last year. It was a few months into it where I went, I've done all the the good deeds. I've done the soul searching now. I've sat still. I've started doing yoga every day. I've started running. I haven't been baking the sourdough bread like every other fuckwit, but I've been doing my things. Now I'm ready to to get on with things. What's going on here? And that's when I, for want of a better term, unraveled a little bit and I went, oh, th- this, this really sucks and this is going to take a long time and you're going to have another birthday where you're not with your partner. You're probably going to have another Christmas not with your partner. So how does that feel? And it felt really hard and it was at that point where it felt hard and and two things happened one I started seeing a psychologist to give me the tools to actually deal with things because for the first time in my life I realized that it was not going to be healthy to be a good presenter on air every day and just bottle things up and be able to make conversation and be able to put on that bright sparkly personality because I felt like being quiet and not adding to the noise and I was sick of people telling me that I just need to start a podcast and I'd be fine. So there was that and having a real Spo- sound spo- Spoiler alert, she did eventually start a podcast. So I don't wanna- Spoiler alert, I yeah. now have three ongoing <laughs> podcasts. Well, but I needed to come yeah, up with them we'll, in my own time. We'll get to that. We'll, we'll get to the podcast, yeah. but yes. Yeah. So it was like I, I wanted – I needed to be quiet and I didn't want to be told that I needed to be productive. I wanted to talk to someone that was professional. So I started seeing a psychologist and she was so amazing at giving me tools to just quieten that noise. And then the other thing was, was that I started being creative for the sake of just being creative. And I would sit and just open my laptop and I had started about 
40 different Google documents where all of a sudden, because I was bored, because I was kind of down, because I wasn't getting this daily stimulation and self-esteem that you get from doing a radio show and you kind of ride off the buoyancy of that and then you have dinner and then you go and do it again the next day, I had to self-stimulate and I had to actually have a mode of curiosity and imagination that came from just me that didn't come from the news, that didn't come from doom scrolling, that just came from me. And that was when I went, oh, now I, now I think I might have an idea for this. And I think I might have an idea for this. And maybe I have an idea for this. And now I've also got the tools to help me sleep at night because I've also got a therapist showing me the right way to do things. And it was from that that the turning point happened. And I, I know that I've learnt and grown so much in terms of who and what I want to be as a person and as a presenter for the next foreseeable years of my career, more than I would ever have gotten if I was just doggy paddling and rushing from one project to the next, which is what I'd done for the last 15 years of my life. Uh, It's interesting, isn't it? Like I was, it would have been my 25th comedy festival in a row uh, before it was cancelled and so for the first time ever it took a global pandemic but for the first time ever I had a year off from doing a show and just to feel what it looked like and oh my brain like there was times when I just like was like I actually like can't come up with any more ideas brain today like I know that like there was just this real thing that I was thinking in a different way there were projects or things occurring to me that had never occurred to me before and I was lucky because it feels like you found a productive way to manage it they say when you read a lot of those rock and roll books they always say that the bands got in trouble with drugs and alcohol not really on tour often it was when you got back from a big tour and you suddenly didn't have that thrill of getting out there on stage every night Mm -hmm. and doing that show that you would then have to replicate that in the rest of your life with sort of drugs and partying and these sort of things was there any moment where you were doing the you know the COVID thing where you were drinking too much or eating too much or kind of you know was, was that a part of the process before it got healthy well see I'm lucky in that I don't drink. Ah, have I you ever stopped drunk? drinking. Oh, oh no, you stopped. I no, I stopped. I I used to I used to drink like you know, party gal out on the town, do some drugs, have some have some drinks, but I always had real Asian curse, like where my face would get really red and I'd get really <laughs> rashy whenever I would drink. So I I kind of had to always curb it because I would just be. I'd be swollen in these kind of hives when I'd be out and about. So I would have to be really careful with that. And then when I met Magnus, my partner, I was kind of barely drinking at that stage anyway. And then he doesn't drink at all and doesn't know. He's a total straighty 180. And then when I met him, I was like, oh, this is a relief. I don't have to keep up with anyone. Because I think before that I was trying to keep up with people or, oh, we've bought a bottle of wine at dinner and you're going to feel, you know, the whole, I don't want to drink alone. So I would always force myself to have a a glass or two and then I'd just get really red-faced and really tired. So this way it kind of just took out the question mark. So it was, it was, I, I was, I was lucky in that way. And I, was lucky because I think if I had lived alone, so I was, I w- I'd come back and I had the house to come back to, which was dad's place. And he had, you know, spare bedroom, stay, stay there. 
But I think if I'd lived alone, it might be harder for me because I I like interaction. I'm not totally – I don't think I'm a 100% extrovert. I definitely like alone time. But I think having the foundation of family here in Sydney that I was able to turn to and speak to my brother, speak to my nephews, having the kids around was such a big help to me because I think when I first got back, I easily could have spiralled into just just feeling crap. And there were so many people that would come up and go – oh, you just chose the worst time to quit your job, didn't you? Oh, is that a bad thing to say? And I'd be like, what the fuck? Like, why would you say? I actually was feeling okay today, but now you said that, that sucks. Uh, Can I ask on that? Was there times, because this is the the interesting thing that I had to go through last year was what people would ask me, you know, it was a bad time to quit your job, wasn't it? And I never got to the point where I felt like it was, I will say. Like, I'm still happy that I made the decision I made, even though my plans got put on, on hold for a year. Were, are you still happy that you made that decision? So happy. So happy. I was thinking about it a couple of days ago, in fact. Just knowing where I've come in this last year, in that two-pronged thing, as a person, but also as a presenter what I what I can do with my job now I feel I felt always throughout the last year still resolved in that decision even though it was it was really hard you still kind of know in your gut that it was your time to go you kind of know it takes that I think it takes a a certain degree of self-awareness especially when you work at somewhere like Triple J when you know that it is your time to go and it is up for up to you to make that call because otherwise you don't want to be the person that outstays their welcome. Not at a youth radio station. So I think I'd made that decision almost a year or two ahead of when it actually happened. So I was so ready and resolved in it. So even in the hardest points of last year, I knew that it was the right thing for me to be doing and it kind of sucked. And the thing that I I felt kind of sucked more so wasn't that I wanted to be at Triple J. It was just that I wanted to be with Magnus. I wanted to be able to progress my relationship. I wanted to be able to think about being a mum and like trying to start a family and all of those things. Those were the things that felt like, ooh, this is a trigger. You can't keep spiralling on these things that you can't change right now. You need help for this. Okay, so something that's come up a couple of times is how it changed your relationship to being a broadcaster. Uh, You know, so I'm interested in this because I always like people's – the idea that people have a broadcasting philosophy of some kind is interesting to me anyway. Like, was there when in your previous role, particularly with Triple J, when, you know, it is – like for those, because there's obviously a lot of international listeners to do this show and who might not truly know what Triple J is because there's nothing really like it much in the rest of the world. So it can be a little hard to explain, but it is a national youth radio station that is run by the ABC, which is a public broadcaster funded by the government. So it means there is some government inference and restrictions, but mostly what it means is there's no advertising. So there's no commercial imperative. It plays a lot of Australian music, but it plays like, you know, alternative music, new music, music that isn't being featured on commercial radio stations and you know it's been big for comedy and for music in Australia and all these sort of things and I was a presenter there on the breakfast show for five years and and Linda worked there for 25 years which (laughs) (laughs) pretty much I think I was I worked all up for 10 years there 
It was like a couple years before the London move and then seven or eight years after I moved back from London. Uh, so what was your philosophy, you know, when you were at Triple J of like what it was that you thought you were doing when you went to work? I thought, and I think rightly so, that you go there and you make people's lives better by being there. You play the music that they like. You respect the person that's listening. You enjoy that it's a two-way street, even though the text line can be really awful sometimes, but the interaction that community audience reach is so rewarding. And you get to be, I guess for want of a better term, like a voice of the people. You get to represent the people that you grew up with, the people that you're thinking of that don't don't just live in the cities but live in the rural areas and being able to bring that joy on a daily basis and then you see it face-to-face when we broadcast it, you know, big festivals like Splendour in the Grass and you just go, this is why I'm doing it. This is what makes it worth it and because I was so passionate about music. So for me it was so rewarding in so many ways but – there's definitely a point where I, I, I know the next things that I really want to focus on. Okay, so that what's that now? So that's that's where this is the you know this is the pivot. This is the turn. This is the yeah, moment where you say yeah. you know I'm done with what's gone on before, and now I'm interested in what's happening next. What is it that you're hoping to achieve, and what is it that you are doing? I think I. I think at Triple J and my entire career at the ABC and doing that sort of that sort of presenting is that I can hit a really high level of consistency, productivity, execution of the task, doing the show well for days upon days and years upon years. I can do that. I've nailed it. You want to premiere a song? I'll premiere it. You want to talk about a press release? I can do it. You want me to break Billie Eilish and then do this great interview with Tame Impala? Great. We can do that. You fucking nailed it for years, Linda. Good on you. But what else can you do? Are you a one-dimensional radio presenter? Well, at the moment, even though you might be one of the one of the top ones because you're national and you're there and, you know, you, you're really loved by the audience, you're, you're kind of jumping into a role where the audience already exists, if that makes sense. It's, mm-hmm. it's so different stepping into a role where the audience exists and they're, they're, they are there to like you and you're not there to piss them off. You're not there necessarily to challenge them. And if you do that and you do that well, you kind of hit a glass ceiling. That's what I felt like. I've kind of done everything. I've done all the news crosses. I've done all the hottest 100 special countdowns where all these international people listen. I've done all the great insightful interviews with material and wow, you got some good things out of him. But that's not enough and you're probably the same where you go, what's the three-dimensional thing of me? What happens if I step away from this and I try to create something from scratch where there's not already an assumed audience? What if I create an audience? Who do I want to talk to? It's not enough just to be good at something that someone has pushed you onto a pedestal. I want to create that for myself and I want to inspire people in a different way and this isn't all that I am. And for me, I always cared so much about the craft of radio and about the craft of what storytelling is 
It's not just about songs and back announcing and forward announcing and talking to an artist or talking to the audience and a great caller. It's about how to weave those elements so you can tell a story. And you can do that if you branch out and if you collaborate with other people and you reach other brains because there's so many amazing brains and creative brains and heads out there and you can do that in comedy. You can do that in podcasting. Maybe you want to write a book and read the audiobook. Maybe you, you want to be a, like a fictional, um, like, an, like an actor on a fictional podcast series. You know, it's just all of those things are out of your reach when you are designed to be a presenter in a daily show. And as soon as you break free of that, all of it is at your fingertips. It's hard to get there. You need to know what you want, but you can design it yourself. So that's interesting to me. No, I, lo- I love that. It's great. I, I think that you're absolutely right. And you're talking, you know, I think if I can, you know, at least read some of what you're saying, which is that you work to a certain point in service of what you do. You worked in service of radio. I'm going to get very good at radio, this craft that there is. And now yeah. that you are really good at this craft, you're saying, how can this craft that I have, this skill that I have work in service of other things that I want to do? I want to take these skills now and use them as a component of these other things that I am going to do. That makes complete sense to me. It makes, I assume it's very much the same with a lot of professions. You know, it's good to master what those who have done before you have done first and then, you know, learn how to do your own thing, build something from the ground up. I love that idea, what you mentioned about building your own audience, not coming into something that would be there regardless, but going, I'm going to build something from the ground up. I'm going to, plant a seed I'm gonna and that's the idea of you know the bands and all these sort of things are projects that tend to start with that right you start playing in front of a few people and then a few more people hopefully and that's how these things build so what have you been building then in your time let tell people about some of the things that so you I, I did joke about it earlier but like you, you after all the suggestions to do a podcast, you really warmed to that idea. So let's yeah. talk about that. Like I, yeah. So I knew that obviously <laughs> podcasting, and because I consume so much, and like I'd done podcasts with Triple J and stuff, but and I knew that that was what I wanted to do. But just being told, <laughs> I'll just do one. I was like, shut the fuck up, man. I don't need to know that right now. Um, big like, duh. What? It, anyway, but. Yeah, it's like you said, starting creating something from nothing, having an idea, it's always going to be so much scarier. And I felt so scared about releasing anything new because there's this expectation of, well, what's Triple J Linda going to do next? Where's she going to be? Is she going to be at Beats 1? It was just all these expectations. And so knowing that I wanted to start something totally on my own and independently, The risk involved in that, the scared, the fear of what if it doesn't go well is so much more real than when you're landing off the back of like a triple J. But the satisfaction and how rewarding it is if it goes okay is just so amazing. And so with the projects that I've done, that I'm doing now, the big one that I started that's the independent one is Tough Love and that's these tough love lessons on all the shit that counts so it was basically every bit of post-traumatic growth for for better term or just shit that you can go through and then come out the other side and feel better learning those lessons along the way and trying to share them with people and create an audience that you don't know exists having that kind of land 
has felt so satisfying and like such a authentic passionate project for me and then having one that Brooke Boney and I had talked about for so long we tried to do a podcast together so many years ago and it just never landed we never it, you know the the timeline never synced up we never had the right people involved and things like that and then so being able to finally really come into that idea and launch Brooke and Linda's Dream Club as well just recently has felt like a dream and then being able to do an, another one which is a music-based one which I get to jump into the world of new music releases called The Spin every week it's like now I get to do this kind of collage of different things that fulfill me in all different ways it's like music pop culture with Brooke and then deep gritty authentic life stuff in tough love. And so that's interesting to me because one of the things I'm noticing is, because obviously when you're a presenter, particularly like a Triple J or whatever, the audience's expectations of who you are, uh, like everything about you needs to be communicated by you, right? Everything you want yeah. the audience to know has to be communicated by you in that scenario. It all has to be mixed together. But what you're really enabling yourself to do now is I can be this here, I can be this Linda here, I can be this Linda here, and I can be this Linda here. What's the advantage of being able to concentrate on being leaning into a specific Linda? Like is there a, you know, do you feel like a different person in each of those environments or at least is there a, a bit a different piece aspect of your personality that you're that you're tapping into to engage in each of those topics differently? I think it's the same. I I you know what it is? It's probably like if you had a best friend that went with you and they went with you to three different events mm. and you took them to Christmas and you're still you're still you you're still will but it's the will that you show to your family and <laughs> around kids and you know where you're eating all day or something and then will that goes to like a sports game and then will that is on stage at the comedy night so it's it all feels authentic to me but it definitely is like a different muscle that you get to flex in each one. And they're all positive. None of them are hiding the others, but it's like if there's three prongs to a iceberg, it's like I'll show you the tip of the iceberg here and then there's all this other stuff going on underneath, but you're going to get the music expertise one today. But you're maybe going to hear little shades of, oh, Linda clearly is interested in She's made this pop culture reference. And if I'm more interested in that, then I'm going to shift to the Brooke and Linda Dream Club one. And so it's it's just like flexing these different muscles that you have. And that's what's so exciting because it it keeps things fun, doesn't it? When you've got different ways that you can pour your energy into. If you don't mind multitasking a bit, it keeps things fun. It, it gives me a, a place to pour those interests into because I think for so many years, I could only ever pour my interests into music and maybe flesh a bit of other stuff with interviewing. But all of these other things that I was so passionate about, I could never really like dissect a film or a TV show or, you know, talk about life and mental health and, you know, family dynamics and things. So this kind of has given me the tools to do all of that. And if I can do those in a way that that serves the person listening as the primary principle at every every step of every episode 
then I feel like I'm doing a good job. I never want to feel like I'm just sharing to flex an ego or to tell my story. I don't think that's anything that I would ever be comfortable with, but doing it as a way of, I think I can share this and it's going to serve you, the person listening, then that makes me really happy. So what was it about, as you said, people can dip into each of those aspects of what relates to them most. And I guess I'm showing my hand by the one that I've dipped into predominantly here. But I am interested in the idea of life lessons, people overcoming, mm. you know, the worst times in their life, what can be learnt out of that. One of the topics that comes up a lot on this is, you know, we're going through a period of time at the moment where there's some genuinely good judgment happening to people who, you know, deserve the judgment that has come in their way. But we're reckoning with the idea of how do we forgive people? Are there roads back from, you know, like how do we move forward on, you know, everything? Like they're good complicated areas. What was it about those discussions about like people overcoming their worst that is interesting to you and do you feel like that's something that you've experienced yourself is that like do you feel like those learning moments have often come after the very hard moments yeah I think anyone not anyone but if you've gone through a hard time be that if your dad's gotten sick or you've lost your job or you've gone through a divorce or or you're stranded in Australia after what you thought was going to be the time where you and your partner could be together after three and a half years and you could finally settle in and stop crying over FaceTime or something. If you can kind of live through those really big lows, I think we can generally admit that there's a level of growth and a really internal growth that happens that happens much faster than it otherwise would. I feel like the level of growth that's happened within me as a person in this last nine months has been more than I've grown in the last 10 years. And it takes a moment to be faced with your feelings, to sit and reset, to learn those lessons. And I never really saw myself doing a podcast that was about life philosophies or sharing a part of me that was really personal because a lot of it is about my personal journey but I felt like I was really getting a lot out of hearing other people's stories when they would tell me certain things and I felt like maybe there's a creative way that I can do something like this and help someone else that's listening because this last year has been such a period of isolation and loneliness for so many people and loneliness not even in a physical sense isolation in a in a social sense and feeling like you're being left behind or feeling like everybody else is progressing or they can do these things and and why can't I and so hearing those stories or being able to share a story particularly if if people know me and they th- they think that I've just got this amazing life or something, hearing that I've had struggles or things like that, feeling that sense of strong community together just feels so powerful to me and it feels really valuable to share that. And that's been what the feedback's been like. It's just I'm just getting these amazing stories from primarily women across the world that are fucking stuck 
that are stuck in Canada and their mum is dying in London and they can't cross the border, that are stuck in New Zealand and their boyfriend is in Paris and this was the year they were meant to move in together. And just that sense of togetherness has already made a project like Tough Love feel worth it because we want that connection. So if I can provide that, that's that's why I'm doing it. Uh, what about the responsibility of connection? Because obviously when you do a show like that, you are going to get a lot of correspondence from people who you directly engage with it. Are you okay with because I imagine some people tell you some quite intimate things and they share with you you know some of their you know deep darkest moments or their fears like was that something that I mean at Triple J you do still have an element of that as well people certainly see you as somebody they know and can share things with but like podcasts is incredibly intimate and when you're doing a show that is about those sort of conversations you know love and emotion and things going wrong and people making bad decisions and having to recover from them like all these things are so there's a confessional nature to the correspondence you have how are you dealing Mm. with the burden of that responsibility that's a good question it's a lot it's a lot and I didn't think that tough love would get this response that it's gotten I thought that I assumed that Unlike Triple J where the DMs that you get are, great job, cool interview, nice hat. (laughs) The responses to this are like, you know, pages and pages Mm -hmm. and voice memos and pages. Um, So it's felt really like, okay, I'm on the right track. This is is a, a green light that this is cutting through because this is a real audience that wants to be spoken to. And like you said, that has felt a little bit overwhelming at times because the inbox just gets really full and you can't just respond Mm -hmm. with a love heart. You can't just respond with a hang in there, buddy, because people are really pouring it out. So I've been trying to physically assign time every week to respond to people so that it doesn't just build up and build up and build up. I don't know what will happen in probably the next few weeks when it gets too much um and yeah I I don't know what how to respond to everyone all the time because it really takes a lot of time and care because I respect them so much it's a big so I, I I'm glad that you're putting aside some time to do it. I would also recommend yeah. I would also recommend if I could give you one little tip is yeah. that um you always prepare yourself mentally for what you're about to do. Like that you go into it really don't go into it by accident. Don't go into it one of those days where, you know, you haven't got enough sleep or you're not quite feeling right because obviously other people's trauma can become your own trauma really quickly because yeah. you're an empathetic person, you engage in their story and you can actually knock yourself and your day or your week a bit out of whack by not being in the right zone for it I think it's just really important to protect yourself as well because these are your listeners but you have a responsibility to like you know protect yourself in that scenario as well but I agree with you I understand entirely like if somebody's written me three pages of something really you know intimate you want to respond you know that to let them know that you've at least taken the time to read it all and you know you might not be able to respond in the same length but that at least you've you've read it and you you know are trying to engage with them it can be it can be a lot and I imagine just for a show like like that it would be a a lot um so yeah yeah. 
Interesting. Okay. Um, uh, the one thing that I, you mentioned very early on that we never got back to, so I'm going to circle back around and get to that, which is that you, you do really, you know, there is, um, you know, a clash of cultures in the baby Buddha and the, you know, Linda, <laughs> Linda Mariano. And it came up thematically, obviously, you know, when these old fellas, you know, sitting around in their privileged, you know, men's club are trying to work out, you know, what's what's going on here. Um, yeah. You know, it's been an interesting, like, time for you to emerge as a broadcaster, I imagine, you know, and this is not, you know, what's it like to be a woman or what's it like to be a, you know, mixed race person in broadcasting, but it has been that time of emergence, right, from it being a predominantly you know, white male space to it very slowly and in a much overdue way, you know, becoming more welcoming to it, you know, being a much more diverse place. So what is, what's, what has been your experience of that? And in a broadcasting sense, at least, you know, the media landscape and how do you see it at the moment? Like, what are the opportunities? Are we going in a positive way? What are the things mm. that aren't moving any near, anywhere near quick enough? I, I've always had a really positive experience. I think I came up through uni, I was doing community radio and then, you know, obviously Triple J and I always felt really supported and really kind of put up on that pedestal of, hey, you're good, come on, let's let's get you on TV, let's get you behind a mic, let's make it happen. So I always felt really quite supported in that and it was only maybe because I'd started when I was, I think, about 22 full-time And it was only when I had gone after a few years and I think when I'd come back after being in London that I started to be more aware of, okay, where's the diversity? Are are we playing to our strengths here? Wow, it is always two white guys that are on breakfast. Wow. When can we change that? Oh, actually, I don't think I want to do breakfast. So it was, <laughs> I was, I was, I was like, I don't want to do the hours. Ah, uh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll back, back, back out of this. But, but I was, I was more aware of it, and in light of things in the last few years, where I think it's just become a lot more part of the mainstream conversations that were happening, that that are happening, and not just on the fringes. And I think just as I've gotten older and I'm more aware of my place in the world, that's what it is. I think just when I was younger, it wasn't that it was better or worse so much. It was just that you, you're so much more self-centred when you're that young and you just don't care and you think you're invincible. But <laughs> now that I'm older, I I can see the place that I have in the world. I can see the the need for visibility, I can, which is another reason why I think it's really important for me to share stories and to share a story that might be slightly left centre. You know, I'm not in a traditional framework. I'm not going to be able to just get married and have a baby. I, my parents aren't white, you know, all of these things. So I think that's been a real um, – a topic that's been at the front of my mind, especially in the last few years, as to who and what I want to represent and why I want to be on TV and why I think it's important to have that representation. And in terms of how it looks now, I mean, it's still pretty bonkers. We're trying. I I think there are some organisations that really try and, and are really trying to diversify. And, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine who's the head of... Um, music at Spotify in the UK and Europe and she is Australian but half Persian, half Chinese and she, you know, made a point of when she was given that really powerful position which otherwise all of the other big bosses that surround her at Spotify are all these kind of white men. 
she made a point of hiring an entirely diverse team, mainly of women. And we're, we're seeing that a lot more. You know, TV shows like WandaVision are talking about how they really strove to have it female-centric. All the epiphanies that happen throughout the show are, are women-driven. But, you know, I turn the TV on at night and it's an entirely white cast. Like, I don't know if I should be naming names, but I'm sitting there watching mainstream reality TV shows. MasterChef is pretty diverse, I'll yeah. say that. But, <laughs> but, you know, I'm watching things that are yeah. like all of the, you know, you look at The Bachelor, you look at Married at First Sight, you look at The Living Room or whatever those shows are called and they're, they're so white. And I remember saying that to my mum once even a few months ago when we were, I don't know, watching The Bachelor or something and I was like, look at everyone on screen, mum. And I remember her turning to me, and my mum's Chinese-Malaysian, and I remember her turning and going, oh, but people like us just aren't in those roles because we don't want to be on TV. We don't want to be in those roles. You know, in, in, Indigenous people probably don't want to be on TV. And I was like, what are you talking about? This is the level of it where even you're telling this to your daughter, who is a presenter on TV, who has one of her best friends, Brooke Boney, also Indigenous and a presenter on TV. Like, we are clearly hungry for these roles. So that needs to change, but it needs to change from the top, you know? It's it's not just about us wanting it. It's about people making it a prerogative to to find and source and prop people up and then more people will go, oh, maybe I can do this. And then it's like a, a chain effect. Yeah. It's a human centipede effect. But, I mean, this is, yeah, and this is the entire, like, point, isn't it? That it all relies on those who have the entrenched power to give up some of the entrenched power. And, you know, yeah. and that's the same with the economy and that's the same with, you know, like, this with broadcasting, any of these industries. We, like, it, it isn't just enough that there's going to be some plucky youngsters who come up through the system who, you know, force their way into it. You've got to have those at the top being willing to actually allow that to happen, you know. To open those doors. To open those doors and the idea of gatekeepers and you've got to be able to actually do that and it's your responsibility to do that and it's okay to be held to account to do that and I think it's good, you know, yeah, it's an interesting conversation. I'm aware of how long we've already been talking and I have a whole bunch of other questions so I'm going to, I'm going (laughs) to try to... Oh no, I'm sorry. No, it's good. No, this is the whole point of the podcast is to have these conversations but I also just have some regular things I like to ask people and uh, I've got a new one as well because we uh, just celebrated oh, okay. recently 200 episodes and I've introduced a new question into the, the roster. So okay. you are officially, uh, Linda, the first person who has ever been asked this question. This question has come up a lot okay. on the show over the years, but you are actually the first person I've ever asked it to on the show. Uh, on my desk, I uh, have a little, uh, it's a little inspirational quote on a piece of like, you know, heavy lead sort of, you know, thing. I don't know what it is actually made of, some sort of metal or whatever, but it's inscribed. And I'm not a person who like lives in an office of, you know, motivational quotes or anything, but I've always responded to this one and it sits on my desk to remind me, you know, occasionally of this, which is, uh, what would you attempt if you knew you could not fail? That is the question, right? So what would you attempt if you knew you could not uh, could not fail is the question I am now also asking you, Linda. Oh, fuck. That's a really hard one. But see, 
I'm thinking of magical powers now. I'm like, what if I jump off a building because I think that I want to fly? Well, no, this is, yeah, okay. No, it's not a great, is, you know, day-by-day okay. philosophy that you should institute. <laughs> and, and as I think it was Bill Hicks who famously said, if you think you can fly, start on the ground. You don't need to start on the top of a building if you can actually fly. So, <laughs> Okay, okay. So what's the question again? What would you, what attempt, would you attempt if you knew, if you're guaranteed of success, if you knew you could not fail, what would you attempt? Oof, 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 oof. Um, I would, I would start, oh, this is so lame, but I would, I was like, I would want to start some sort of, oh, I've got so many ideas, but none of them I can hone in on. (laughs) Might be a different, might be the last time I asked this question, Linda. No, (laughs) no, it's really, it's really, it's really good because I was like, I would want to start a fashion brand. Ah, see, that's good. That's a good place to start. like I would want to start uh, there's not enough it's not it's not easy enough always to find really good sustainable ethical fashion and I've been trying to really wean myself off buying anything that's fast fashion so I want to just start a brand so that I can wear everything that I want to wear I can look like the fuck boy that I want to be but have it be completely recyclable completely re- sustainable so that people aren't going online and buying Yeezys for 6 grand I'm like by recyclies. <laughs> that's a, that's a really good one. I like that. That's a very cool thing. That, it also gives me an insight. I've been trying to do Jan. Do you know Jan Fran? So Jan Fran yes. does no new clothes. So she only wears like yes. things that you can get from like oh. op shops or secondhand or you know that are given to. But no new clothes. And she's been doing it now for I think she's in her second or third year of doing it. And she always has fabulous outfits and she wears them all with style. She's got incredible style, like very unique style, but like incredible style and just like wears it with such confidence. And so. I last year like inspired by her I was like I'm in this downtime I'm not going anywhere like I have a bunch of clothes I'm just going to see at least if I can go through a year and just wear all the clothes I have like I don't want to wear in I don't want to buy anything new for an entire year and so I got through an entire year I'm, I am now about like you know three months into a a new year of that so that that's been my thing did you buy to do. on on uh, at the end of that year did you really want to buy new things? Did you find this like materialistic no. urge in you? No, you know what it is? I feel like I've really been like re-engaging with some clothes that have just sat in the cupboard for ages. Like that I'm like, actually, this is a pretty good jacket. I don't know why I stopped wearing this jacket. Yes. So there's been a bit yes. of that. But also there's this great joy in that I'm wearing things out. So I've thrown out a few things in this time. So like I've just done that thing of going, you know what? Those shoes are done. You know what? Those pants are done. That hole is not repairable anymore. I am just going to throw these away. And my wardrobe's got a bit smaller. So I feel like when I eventually get to the point where I'm like, I'm going to need a new show show shirt soon like none of my shirts now are quite good enough to wear on stage in front of people who've paid enough money to come to a show but like that's perfect but that's about it at the moment where i'm like the rest of it is actually pretty manageable so i i dig this idea anyway like i i mean a like a non-fast fashion you know a sustainable but cool clothing brand and that could be very successful which is the whole premise of the bit is a very cool idea i like that I feel like I've got so much kind of um, uh, guilt about trying to do the right thing all, all the time and 
you know, I still eat a little bit of meat. I, st- I, I want to be full vegan. I need to be doing these things. I want everything to be sustainable. And, you know, every now and again I buy a <laughs> packet of baby spinach from Coles that's covered in plastic. So that's my, that's my guilt. That's my day-to-day guilt. Uh, it's interesting. How much do you think individual action relates to, you know, the issues that we are currently in as the world? So, you know, there would be oh. some people who would argue that it doesn't matter one bit whether you're eating plastic spinach or not because, like, you're such a small cog in the giant machine that it's about overthrowing the entire way the system works rather than you not buying your, your – your, uh, you, at the very least, if you're doing it once a month, you shouldn't feel guilty about it, you know. Or do you believe in the idea that personal responsibility is the only first place that we can start or some combination of those it doesn't have to be a uh, it's got yeah dichotomy i it's got to be both doesn't mm. it i feel like the the cynic in me is like it's not going to work why are you carrying your keep cup around like an idiot this is not you know you, you you're not going to make a difference but then the angel on my shoulder the optimist goes but if everybody thought like you, then the world would be horrible and women would never have gotten the vote and this and that and the other. So we do need to band together because we can make change if we all, if the population, you know, comes together like a real community. So I I definitely have the cynic in me that goes, we need to overthrow the lords that design these rules and these policies, of course, but at the very least... I can do my best to try not to get takeaway coffee cups. Uh, I try. We're talking about the world. There are some restrictions on you talking about the world when it comes to working for the government, you know, particularly politically. There are yes. a bunch of restrictions around. And often, you know, politics can get caught up with issues, you know, so that there's issues that it's hard to speak about because, you know, there's some requirement of balance and there's some things that you don't want to give balance to. So you end up just not talking about the issue because you don't want to provide the the other horrible opinion that would come in a balanced sense around that issue. Have you found that there's been a freedom in what you can talk about that you couldn't talk about previously? Yeah, I think so. Not that I'm overly a a big, I guess, political speaker. I'm I've I've never been kind of overactive in that way. But I also do think that that is a, a product of working for the ABC. That and it's it's like an easy way out too. It's a really easy way out to have an opinion to go, oh, well, I can't post anything anyway. I can't even post this meme of Donald Trump when he was going for the presidency, you know, however many years ago, because that that, that doesn't fall in line with Triple J and with the ABC's non-bias policies. So it becomes this really easy excuse to not have an opinion on anything. And that is not a good thing. It makes you really beige in your opinions because you just stop trying. You go, well, what use is this to me? I I don't need to really have an opinion on this. So it's felt really nice to not feel like that. It does give you more social responsibility because you go, now all of a sudden I have a platform and I have a voice and I don't have to be silent. So is there a social responsibility to be adding my voice to the news cycle when something happens? Is this the point where you post the black square and really just go for gold? And I think that probably like you, you you pick your battles. You, you, you choose mindfully what it is that you're going to contribute to because if you're just contributing 
to feel relevant, then, well, there's no point. Shut up. But if you have something active that you are really genuinely passionate about and you want to contribute, then then do it. I did work with a campaign this year that Ben Simmons, um, that NBA player, started. And he started it and it's called Do More. And it's uh, about promoting diversity and equality throughout Australia, particularly in light of Indigenous Australians and policies. So for me, that was something that felt like, wow, this is finally I can I can do something like this. I can actually stick my neck out for something that I really believe in. I probably won't do this a hundred times through the year because it's it's mentally really exhausting because you're so passionate about it. But if I can if I can at least just do this one and carry that through into the rest of my life, then then it gives you an opening, doesn't it? When you're a free body that can just go on a rager on Twitter or something. Uh, yeah, yeah no, but a responsibility as well, as you said. You know, it, it does come with, and I was really glad that you shared that idea of the fear of being beige around it because I think that there can be a safety in saying that you can't have an opinion, right? Like, And yeah. I think that that can be a safety net and then that moment where you're picking your battles because I agree with you, most of the time, if you can't affect it, shut up, stay out of the way, right? You're just adding to the noise and it is not helping anything at all. But then when you decide, okay, this is... I have a special insight to this or I am so particularly passionate about this that I think that I need to fly the flag in this regard. A lot of the time, really, what I will do is just elevate other voices is my real, you know, if I'm passionate about an issue, here's a whole bunch of other people who are much smarter than me who've written articles or are experts in the area that, look, you're going to get a real sense of what I think from the eight articles I just retweeted and what they're about. But the actual detail of it, the expertise is from these people. It tends to be a way that I'll do that. But then when you are going to as you said, you pick your battles, you are going to go to battle, you're going to, you know, strap on the sword and like, you know, stand up. I think Do More was a great campaign. I followed that. We had a little look at it just off air for, for Gruen as part of, you know, another thing that we were doing. And I, I think it's a really powerful slogan just in a really marketing sense because so often we lose the battle of doing something, of doing more to this idea that we can't agree on what the more is. You know, that people go, well, we can't do this. We can't get to that. And we argue over this fictional end goal rather than sort of uniting on the thing that we all agree, which is we need to do more, right? So mm-hmm. it's always just a very good starting position, you know, with anything. I want to learn how to exercise and you're like, oh, well, I can't go to the gym for an hour. That's too overwhelming. But you don't need to really. You just have to start doing something and then the next day you need to do more. And if it's quite easy to do more if like one push-up like is doing more the next day is two push-ups you suddenly that is a way that you can move forward and you can achieve things obviously that was a campaign that was about bigger thing than push-ups but I just thought it was a smart you know positioning slogan it's a it's a good offer to the audience to make legitimate change I think in that regard uh so okay you fly the flag for that what other issues are going to get you you know you your sword out of the I don't know what you oh. carry a sword in like a sword holder in your sheath a sheath. sheath out of your sheath. your sheath is that what it is what other I think so sheath yep. yeah I think I think for me the the primary sentiment is is mainly diversity yeah and diversity across the board obviously I work in media so for me I can maybe 
make a bit of a difference for diversity in media, hopefully. But for me, it's it's really just diversity across all, all fronts and that's in terms of gender, sexuality, race, everything within here in Australia. Um, and particularly, like you said, elevating those that that should be getting there. I think a long-term goal for me would be to be one of the gatekeepers, to be an overlord that actually makes decisions that isn't there working and being a face of the people, but someone that can actually make those decisions in terms of hiring, in terms of the voices we're hearing, in terms of the voices we're prioritising. That for me would be a long-term career goal to actually be a part of that change. I, I don't want to be a a commentator, for want of a better term. I don't just want to be a commentator. I actually want to push change by being in charge of change. Uh, I ask people in this podcast if they have a philosophy. We've covered so many things already you know, in this chat that I imagine we've probably touched on it if you could even sum up a, a personal life philosophy in a sentence. But can you? Is there some sort of credo or guiding principle by which you do live your life? There's two, there's two things that I think about quite often. One of them is recent. One of them is something that my boyfriend said to me. The one that he said to me, which I think about very often, is everything can wait. And that was a, a springboard response to me living my life in a way that was constantly rushing from one project to the next on a year-to-year level but on also a day-to-day level, on an hour-to-hour level, where I would never give myself the breathing space to reset between tasks, to actually nail them, to, to focus on myself and my well-being before diving into the next record or the next job or the next TV show. So that mentality of everything can wait and that turning down that inner voice in my head that said, you need to people please, you need to rush this next thing, this person's waiting for you, go and do that. It was a way of turning down the volume on that and knowing that, no, if I need time, everything can wait. So that I keep in my head almost daily now when I need to focus on deadlines and feel caught up in in the rush, in the urgency of that and feel like I'm going to let people down. And then the other one was something that I read in a book recently called Darkness is Golden and it's by a Sydney psychologist called Mary Huang and it's about dealing with life's messinesses, messinesses, (laughs) mess and coming out the other side and she talks a lot about growth and mental health but there's something that she wrote towards the end of that book and it was transformation is a rite of passage And I think that for years I always kind of lived that way, but it definitely has felt almost like the mantra where you go, change is scary, but it's essential. How uh, do you – that's a theme that's come up a couple of times, which is this idea of changing – you know, you talk about a long distance relationship. This might get too personal. If it does, please, you know, feel free to tell me to shut up. But, uh, you, you know, you're in a long distance relationship. Like, 
you have a personality that kind of enjoys change. I can imagine in some ways those things can almost be complementary. Like, you know, you can be off doing your projects, you can do your things, like, yeah, people, you can live your own lives and then you can have sort of lives that intertwine with each other, but they can be very exciting. And it can feel like, you know, things are changing all the time because there is no settled nature to it. Is there an element of fear in the idea of like being with somebody yeah, you know, well, your boyfriend on a full time basis that you know you might suddenly just like yeah. You know, will you do you feel confident that you'll still be able to engage with all those you know great things about change you know but just change with another person in unison with another person? I think so. I mean, that's what I'm fucking banking on, aren't I? Yeah. <laughs> but I I think so. I think so because it's been. It's been such – it's been the opposite of a rash decision. There has been uh-huh. so much pouring <laughs> over this decision that we couldn't pour over it or philosophise yeah. over it any fucking more that it's like, yes, I've thought about this. I've thought about this again and again and again and again and again and again and, again, and I think I can do it. And with with that change, when the dust settles on that, lo and behold, before I have a fucking chance to get bored – it will be the next change, which will be let's try and have a baby. Let's try and do this. There will always, fortunately and unfortunately, be these changes that will happen and then I'll be like, and now I'm, you know, going through menopause. So now all these other changes. So before I know it, I feel like these, we are never going to be able to escape to change. So embracing it and if you're lucky enough to choose when you get to have some of the changes before those changes in direction and decisions get made for you. So that's exciting to me. That is exciting. Uh, what do you think happens when we die? Oh, I, um, I've realised I've realised that I am, I think pretty just science based and I when I grew up, I used to th- believe in God and I used to pray every night and we would go to church a little bit with our Italian Roman Catholic family. And then when I got older, I think my dad had some books about reincarnation and about, you know, life after death and how it's all cycli- uh, cyclical. Is that how you say it? And I kind of believed that for a little bit. And then as I've gotten older, I just think that when we die, we hopefully have a lovely funeral where people cry and they play some of our favourite songs. But I think that's kind of it. I don't know if I believe in ghosts. And this would be the point where if there is a ghost, come on in here. I did all the Ouija boards when I was 15 years old. But I, I've become more and more cynical and scientific, I suppose, about the other, the afterlife. How um, does that make you feel? The Particularly coming from someone who... You know, if you're religious, you believe in, you know, yeah. originally the sort of reward of heaven. And then, you know, if you explore reincarnation, that's about the reward of good deeds being, you know, repaid in, a, you know, another yes. sense. And, you know, karma and how good you are as a human affects what your next life will be like and all these sort of things. And then the scientific, you know, look at it is 
we are an accident in the corner of the universe and you are nothing before and you're going to be nothing again. And that's actually the story. And any yeah. meaning you have in your own life is self-given meaning or community meaning. So how does that make you feel? Are you okay with that? Yeah, I yeah. think I am. I think I'm really okay with that because I think that it's not a depressing or dark or sad point of view. I think that it's real and I think there's such beauty in that. Wow, if we get buried, we go into the earth and then the worms eat us and that's cool. And why spend my life thinking about what's going to happen when I die when what I what is going on right here and now is so amazing. We can have incredible food and incredible sex and if you're lucky enough, maybe if you want to, you can have a family and if you don't, great. If you can travel the world, awesome. I I think that if Maybe if we have one of these conversations right before I die, I'll be like, please, Will, tell me that there's heaven because I don't want there to be nothing after I die. You know, that that might change. But at this point in my life, I feel happy and very resolved thinking about the idea that we get to live this amazing life. I'm in a position where I, I'm lucky enough to live a really nice, probably pretty long life life knock on wood and there's nothing sad about that and there's nothing delusional about that do you worry do you uh care about being remembered is legacy of some kind important to you mm. i care if i I care if I made it. The first thing I thought of was making a difference to a little girl somewhere around the world that goes, oh, that girl did that and she was, she was, she was cool and she was flawed and, and she took real pride in her job and she, but she loved people and she was really nice to people but was, had a really sharp wit. If I inspired someone like that and they remembered me, that's that's really cool but being universally adored and admired and famous or anything i i don't think i really care that much i don't really care about that um i asked this question and i know it's sometimes a difficult question i actually think in a way you speak reasonably confidently about your strengths which is something i always like in somebody you know you're able to at least you know articulate you know things that you you know might do well and like sometimes people can just be so clouded in self-hate or you know imposter syndrome or whatever that oh the hate's there that. don't worry oh, oh no, no 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 you can't do what you know we all do without the hate being there i'm just i enjoy also when somebody can articulate the other side of it everybody can articulate the self-hate everybody yep. can relate to being an imposter and you know hating the sound of their voice or thinking they're doing a terrible job or they deserved that they lost that job or they can't believe they ever got in the first place all that it's easy to get people to talk about that stuff it's much yeah. harder to ask someone the question, what's you at your best? Like, what's, what are you really good at? Listening. I think I'm really good at listening. I think I really enjoy listening. I think I'm good at it. And I think I want to listen for the rest of my life. And that That's means... That's a really good answer. 
Yeah. It's a good answer. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah, I, look, I cut you off a little because you paused and it felt like I wasn't listening. <laughs> but <laughs> ironically, which I was is kind of, very unbrand. Yeah, I, I thought I thought so, and that's like I was like, that's what I always look for because I like to think I'm an active listener as well, Linda. Yeah, and I, was like, I think there's a pause. Exactly. I'm ready to go, and ready then I go. really crashed over the top of you, and I felt like that's not what I was going for there. Uh, I love it. It's it. Uh, one more question, and we're done. This is uh, thank you so much for doing this. So let's uh, one more time just plug it, plug everything. Let's just plug anything oh, that you want people to know about anything and everything, anything uh, and everything. And I will also do an intro with proper plugs at the top. But this oh, is, you know, go for you, it. You, yeah. Okay. Settle up, cowboys. It's it's plug time. So yeah. there is, if you want to, you can check out Linda Mariano's Tough Love, which is our tough love life lessons on all the shit that goes on in your life and all the stuff that really counts. There is Brooke and Linda's Dream Club, which is us talking very analytically but also hopefully very humorously about the most important moments in culture week to week. There is The Spin, which is all of the need-to-know new music releases week to week, to week, which comes out on a Friday. And very soon there will be the return of The Set on ABC TV with my friend Dylan Alcott. Uh, thank you so much for doing this show today. I super appreciate it. Now, one final question. This is a standard. Um, I have a time machine. I can take you to any Ooh. point in the future, to any point in the past. It is a, re- a return trip. You have to bring the time machine back so I can use it for other people. You do not have to do something necessarily for the world's sake. You don't have to go back and kill baby Hitler or anything like that. I'll send an appropriate person back to to deal with all those sort of major issues. So you can use it selfishly in whatever way you would like to use it. Like I said, you can go forward in time, backwards in time. You can visit yourself. You can change something about your life. You can observe something. You don't even have to go and visit yourself if you want. You can go and to any point in you know, time or space or whatever. What, what would you like to do? Oh, my gosh. I would never go to the future. That's fucked. We all know the future's going down. I'm not going to the future. I'm not going to go to any point in my life because I feel like that would conjure up some weird back to the future meeting of myself weirdness. I would go to the early 80s, late 70s. You choose a year. And I would start in New York and I would meet, you know, the Basquiat's, the Andy Warhols. I'd be backstage hanging out with Madonna and John Malkovich and Gary Oldman and I would date Steve Buscemi and (laughs) then at some point I would cheat on him at all the fun (laughs) nightclubs and I would leave New York in the hustle and bustle and I would get on a plane and go to London and then I would hang out with Joy Division and the start of New Order and I'd go to the Manchester scene and I'd be 24-hour party people and it would just be wild and then Maybe I wouldn't come back. Sorry. I'm keeping the time machine with me. I kind of feel like you'd really get over your no drinking policy pretty early in that trip. Yeah. That's look, what I would it's, say. It's like, you know, different <laughs> postcode, no rules. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. International waters. Time travel is international waters. It's, it's fine. fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so much for doing this today, mate. This was fun. Thank you. What a pleasure. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Willosophy. If you liked this episode, you might also be interested in hearing from Alex Dyson, another former Triple J presenter. Alex has appeared on the podcast twice. Here is a brief snippet from his first appearance on the podcast back in 2019. I want to help the environment and climate change because... Yeah, the earth will keep spinning, the rock will keep going around, humans might not be on it. So the best way to do that is to communicate to other humans that, look, we've got to fix this problem, otherwise survival of the species. And it's not just as simple now as looking for someone with some uh, bright plumage. Um, it's, a, it's a broader species look at furthering it. You can scroll up in your feed to hear that episode amongst the many others in the back catalogue of episodes of Willosophy. Check out portraits for all of our guests at instagram.com slash willosophypod. We're also on Twitter, willosophypod. And you can head to tofop.com slash willosophy to see all the other episodes as well. We'll see you next week.